0: <sighs> All right, Youth Sunday. Come on around. Have you guys ever heard of something called the Beatitudes? Yes, that's what we. Just yeah, it's what we just heard in the gospel reading. So the verses that Deacon Carl just read are what Christians call the Beatitudes. Now, if, if you're like me, you might be wondering, "What in the world's a Beatitude? Is it a is it a bumblebee with an emotional problem?" <laughs> A beatitude? Come on, guys. That's... I've worked on that a long time. <laughs> so the word beatitude comes from a Latin word that means blessing. So Deacon Carl just read the blessings of Jesus. But another way you could translate the word beatitude is by using two words. Beatitudes can be translated as wonderful news. So Deacon Carl just read the wonderful news of Jesus. Hey. Hey. Way to go, Deacon Carl. Killing it. Now, we all know what wonderful news sounds like, right? Finding out you're going to Disney World or that you made 100 on a big test. Like, those are examples of good news. Raise your hand and tell me if you can think of another example of good news. You, you reversed. What's an example of good news? Bees. I hate bees. Bees are good news. Bees. Pollination is important. You are one hundred percent right. Bees. What's another example of good news, Daniel? We're gonna go on a train. Yeah, going gonna to go on to train. a train. That's great news. The gospel. The gospel. Good news. Yeah, getting a dollars from the bank. Getting a gazillion dollars from the bank. That might also be a felony, but it could be good news. So. Let's say you wanted to hear wonderful news from your mom and dad. Do you think there's some things that you could do that would help them maybe give you that wonderful news faster? Do you think if it would help if you did things like clean your room or do all your chores and make good grades? If you did stuff like that, maybe they would give you the good news sooner, right? But is, is that what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes? No. No. The Beatitudes, are the Beatitudes about Jesus telling us to behave properly, and if we do, he'll give us good news? Are the Beatitudes about Jesus saying if we try really hard, then maybe he'll give us some nice stuff? No. The Beatitudes are not about us behaving properly so that God will bless us. I think the Beatitudes are about something altogether different. You want to hear what I think that is? You'll have to listen to the sermon. What That's called a cliffhanger, kids. Back to your seats. <clears throat> so, the answer to the question what is Jesus saying in the Beatitudes starts way back in the Old Testament. Israel was enslaved in Egypt. And God used a man named Moses to lead them out. Israel departed Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They traveled through the wilderness, and God led them to the border of the Promised Land. But before Israel entered the Promised Land, God had made them a set of promises. God made a covenant with Israel. And in this covenant, God swore that he would drive out the nations from in front of Israel. And everyone who saw this would know that they were his people, and he was their God. Now take notice God doesn't make this covenant with Israel because they've earned it. Israel doesn't win over God because they were impressive. Israel doesn't catch God's eye with their moral fortitude or their upright qualities. No, God loved Israel even though Israel wasn't the greatest among the nations. Even though Israel doubted and complained, even though Israel chased after other gods, God loved them still. Israel's compliance to God's law was not a prerequisite for God's love. And that's good news for Israel because Israel never seemed to get that balance right. There were individuals in Israel's history that are shining examples of the kind of person that God desired. But for the nation as a whole, its history is full of disaster and disappointment and ultimately judgment. Yet in spite of it all, the hope of good news remained for them. The hope that the Messiah would come and set all things straight. And after generations of waiting, the hope of Israel, the hope of all mankind, finally appeared. And what's remarkable about how Matthew tells that story, the story of the Messiah, is that the Messiah seems to retrace the very steps of Israel. The Messiah seems to replay the whole story of Israel all over again. In Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is in the promised land. He's born in Bethlehem. But the promised land isn't safe for him, so the Messiah flees to Egypt. The Messiah leaves the promised land and goes to the safety of Egypt, just like Jacob did. In chapter 2, Jesus comes out of Israel—sorry, uh, Egypt, just like Israel did. In Matthew 3, just as Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea, Jesus goes through the waters of the Jordan, through the waters of baptism. And in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus spends time in the wilderness before he moves into the promised land, just like Israel did. Everything that Israel did, Jesus seems to go back and do it all again. But when Christ does it, it's done the way God had always desired. Every temptation that seduced Israel was defeated by Christ. Every rebellious act that Israel committed was undone through perfect obedience to the Father. And then in Matthew chapter 5, something astounding happens. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, located in the promised land, sits down on the side of a hill with a crowd of people, and in the Beatitudes, Jesus begins pronouncing new promises of new blessings for anyone that dwells in his kingdom. In the Beatitudes, Jesus is giving the good news to a new people with whom he seeks to make a new covenant. All the promises made to Israel in the old covenant were now being fulfilled in the new. You know, I think for many people, the Beatitudes are seen as a list of timeless truths, of truisms about the world and about the human condition. Many religions, many sacred texts possess such things. The Bible itself has an entire book called the Book of Proverbs, which is filled with truisms and good advice. So naturally, some people read the Beatitudes just like that. But when it comes to the Beatitudes, I don't think reading them like Proverbs can make much sense. As a matter of fact, if these 12 verses in Matthew chapter 5 were simply a list of wise sayings, then I think we may have a big problem. Guys, mourners don't seem to always be comforted, do they? So far as I can tell, the meek don't appear to be inheriting the earth. And exactly how many people have gone down to their graves without ever seeing justice served? So if the Beatitudes are just proverbs, if the Beatitudes are just good advice, then the Beatitudes are a big swing and a miss. Guys, I want you to hear this closely. The Beatitudes are good news, not good advice. The Beatitudes aren't fortune cookie wisdom for us to break out when times get tough. The, The Beatitudes are an announcement. They're a proclamation by Jesus to the world that something new is starting to happen, that God is beginning to work in this world in a fresh way. I think that at its foundation, the Beatitudes are Jesus announcing new promises for his new incoming kingdom. The Beatitudes are Jesus making promises that address all of the suffering and injustice that are found in this fallen world. And that sounds like something to celebrate, right? God promises to straighten out all of this world's evil and corruption, and man, what could be better than that? But Jesus makes it abundantly obvious in verse 11 that following him, that being in his kingdom will place a target squarely on your chest. And until that day when he appears in his kingdom, fully comes into this world, it will be a dangerous thing to love him. The corrupt kingdoms of this earth will despise you and hate you if you look like a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. This world will slander you and persecute you for the crime of looking like Christ. I struggled for a while thinking about how to describe this. And I think in analogies. And here's the the best one that I can think to explain what's happening in the Beatitudes. Imagine we've traveled back in time to German-occupied France. France. The year is 1944, and we see the people of France under the brutal occupation of the Nazis. This occupation has been going on for years, and for many, it seems like it'll go on forever. They've resisted for years, but the people of France are beginning to wear down. Many are tempted to lose heart, many are tempted to give in, many are tempted to ease their pain by complying with the Nazis. Some are even tempted to change their habits and dispositions to better match that of the Nazis. Some are even tempted to outright side with the Nazis. All of that seems like madness to us. We know how World War II ends. We know that the liberation of France is a certainty. We know that the Nazis and anyone allied with them, that the Nazis and anyone like them will meet absolute defeat at the hands of the Allies. That outcome is 100% assured and we know it. And since we're so sure of that outcome, it makes absolutely no sense to give up. It makes no sense to us to compromise and become like those who are guaranteed to lose. So we begin engaging the people. We begin encouraging the people of France. We go about charging the people of France to live presently like the free people they'll be soon. We charge them to presently inhabit all of the qualities of a liberated and free people, even though they presently inhabit an enslaved land. I think that's the whole point of the Beatitudes. I think the whole point of the Beatitudes is a summons, a summons made by Jesus for us to live in this fallen world with a quality that is rooted in God's promised future. And yes, Living like a kingdom citizen in this world will be uncomfortable. It may even be dangerous. But guys, there's no other option for the church. The church can either look like Christ, or the church can look like the world that persecutes him. And if we look like Christ, then we may choose to suffer the wrath of the world. But if we look like the world, then we choose to suffer the wrath of God. And there is no third option made available to us. And guys, Christ the Redeemer, whatever else someone may think, is not a place where we come to do some nice things. It isn't a place where we come to do some nice religious stuff on a weekly basis. Seemingly now, more than ever, the battle lines between the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdoms of this world are clearly drawn. And make no mistake, Christ the Redeemer has taken a side... Every single class, every single service, every single prayer, every shared meal, every meeting, every single thing this parish family does is aimed at Christ being imaged in you. It's aimed at this parish imaging Christ in the world. From the time that you're born until the day you draw your last breath, our goal and hope at CTR is to see you formed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And yes, we know that may come with a price. But with God making us able, with God imaging himself in and through us, we are willing to pay whatever that price may be. And if you're thinking these words are hyperbole and Bubba's just being dramatic, then please hear me. Everything I've just said has been the normative language and position of the church for 2,000 years. It's always been the mission of the church to image the life of Jesus by the Spirit in a world that hates him. This is nothing new. It has always been the mission of the church to image his life in wait and humble expectation and faithful expectation for the full entrance of his kingdom in this world. As a matter of fact, in the very next chapter, Jesus instructs the people living on this fallen earth to pray for that exact thing. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus assures us in the Lord's Prayer that one day soon, the life of heaven, the life of the realm where God is already king, will fully become the life of this earth as well. And from that day until this, Jesus commands those who follow him in the words of the Beatitudes to begin to live by that rule here and now I'm in